Hello, and thank you for listening to this Virginia Mason Institute webinar recording. Please note that this is the original United Kingdom broadcast of this webinar featuring Melissa Lynn, Dr. Marali Bott, and Tamsin Clake, a presentation tailored for our audience in the United Kingdom. We also have a recording of our U.S. broadcast available for viewing and listening. Thanks again for listening today. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Nice to nice to see everyone. Although I know we can't virtually see you on screen, you can see us. Um, it's deli I'm delighted to be here. My name is Kevin Rennie. I'm Chief Operations Officer at NHS Providers, and we are we are delighted to be hosting this um, this webinar with Virginia Mason Institute and with um, Dr. Morali Bat and his team to learn more about how working through um, lean technologies and process improvement and uh, a virtual clinic style can really help improve outcomes for patients. And I'm not gonna say much more. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna come in for the Q&A piece and I'm gonna hand over to Virginia Mason and Tad to, to take you through the next steps and Tad will, will then pass on to colleagues and I look forward to sharing the Q&A at the end. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Kevin. Um, hi everyone, my name is Tad Aqua. I'm a senior project manager here at Virginia Mason Institute. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, so just some first uh, quick introductions. So Virginia Mason Institute, we're a part of Virginia Mason Franciscan Health, a health system with 11 hospitals and 300 sites of care based in Washington. Uh, so Virginia Mason Institute is a mission-driven nonprofit education and training organization that helps organizations worldwide create cultures of continuous improvement. And so we provide um, everything from introductory um, experiences and training all the way to full uh, transformation services. All right, I'm pleased to introduce today's speakers. Melissa Lynn is a transformation sensei here at Virginia Mason Institute. Uh, Melissa is certified in the Virginia Mason production system and in taproot root cause analysis. And with her continuous improvement foundations originating from the Dartmouth Institute of Health Policy and Clinical Practice, where she earned her master's degree. She's a lean Six Sigma black belt and a certified professional of healthcare quality. Morali Bott is a renowned orthopedic hand surgeon with nearly three decades of specialized experience in orthopedics and in overall 32 years in the medical field. Practicing in the UK as a consultant for over 15 years, he's a prominent medical tertiary expert in the field of wrist and hand surgery. Tamsin Clake is an advanced practitioner of trauma and orthopedics and virtual fracture clinic lead with East Surrey Hospital. She's worked closely with Morali Bot in implementing patient-focused improvements based on the SASH Plus improvement methodology. All right, and with that, I'll go ahead and hand it off to Melissa. Thanks so much, Ted, and thank you everyone for joining us today uh, on this webinar regarding addressing the backlogs crisis. I thought I would just start um, by setting the stage today for why we're all here. It's unknown the rate by which how many more people will need urgent and routine care next year as a result of um, what we've been experiencing in these last 18 months, but this can only add to the considerable backlog of more than 5 million people who um, are documented for waiting for care. And so, you know, despite the best efforts of hardworking staff, there simply isn't the capacity to get through the backlog quickly. Even with 
current staffing levels, it will be a challenge just to keep up with uh, the daily demand, let alone reducing the backlog of all of those uh, folks who have been um, waiting so patiently uh, during the pandemic. Now, uh, let me be clear here, while backlogs in the workforce crisis existed well before the pandemic, COVID-19 has absolutely exacerbated and shown a massive light on the broken and fragile healthcare system we work in. We're seeing disruptions to elective care with increased waiting times, uh, disruption to long-term care needs, uh, particularly those who are seeking that out in either acute care settings, their care homes, or even just their, their own private homes as well. Uh, we're also seeing the massive increase in mental health care needs um, amongst patients and their carers. We're also seeing a major effect on staff the, and their well-being. In a recent NHS provider survey, 48% of trust leaders said they had seen evidence of staff already leaving the organization for early retirement, just plain COVID-19 burnout or other effects from working in the pandemic. And so we know why we're here today and I uh, won't belabor the point. And so we're just gonna dive straight into how we can address the crisis. I want to ask you though, are we willing to challenge the status quo, those ways of working we've come to accept as necessary and must do's when you know, they may have been non-value added to our patients all along. Um, and hopefully you'll hear some of uh, those themes uh, throughout our time today in this webinar. And do you and your team feel empowered to challenge you know, the way we've always done it and improve processes for better patient experience and quality of care. So how do we go about doing this? Um, and I'd like to share first about this approach being very much universal you know, and much uh, applicable to the, any, uh, any type of backlogs that you may be experiencing. So we'll have uh, specific uh, examples here with us today, uh, but you can hopefully start to see um, how adaptable it could be to, to really any kind of, of backlog you may have, a clinical and even non-clinical. Tackling backlogs will not be resolved by simply looking to more staffing or digitization or virtual care as the panacea. It really requires a more comprehensive approach that can help us to implement and sustain improvement. We use a house model to show that improvement is not simply an add-on to how we do our work. It really is the way we manage and improve all of our work for our patients, our people, and our communities. This is a simplified version of a house model we often share at the beginning of our meetings at Virginia Mason to, to center us on, on what we're striving to achieve here. The basics of improvement with leadership engagement and our standard tools and methods serve as the foundation of the house, as you can see on the bottom. Our foundational tools and methods just provide that single common language to speak with as our teams work to improve their work. Respect for people, as the first pillar of the house on the left. It's about real engagement and partnership through a culture of respect. It's about building up team capabilities and understanding that supporting our people uh, as, the, as the answer. Continuous improvement is the second pillar. Well, now this includes improving the work to cut steps out of processes to reduce the burden of work and avoiding creating rework or adding to the unnecessary overburden that we're all experiencing uh, today. And you'll hear Morali and, and Tamsin speak a little bit more to how that um, worked with, with their, their work. 
Now, these pillars surround a focus of improving the flows of healthcare, which is ultimately about a focus on the patient's experience and ensuring that the activities that add value are flowing seamlessly around them. Now, following our unified improvement methodology and using models like this house to represent our unified approach ultimately allows us to leverage improvements across an entire healthcare system to share, spread, and scale improvements and to achieve a high performing, sustainable organization. It gives us this common language to communicate with each other and an innovative environment that enables an acceleration of improvement results as well as long-term adaptability. This is more important than ever, uh, especially as we're moving towards an ICS model. Uh, as we know that tackling the challenges are uh, aggravating that backlogs crisis will require ever increasing levels of collaboration across silos and across system partners. Having this common language and foundation helps us as we need to develop a shared understanding of issues and to co-create new pathways which remove barriers for our patients and trusts and GPs alike. As we move with urgency to find new and better ways of doing our work, that's part of the reason why we're all here today together, uh, we often use this thinking model called the seven levels of change to focus our work. We often use this model in improvement events as we look at our current ways of working with the new lens or seek to find new ways of working as we try to design more efficient flows for our staff and patients. Levels three, four, and five, as you see circled here in particular, are levels of change that commonly highlight areas where simple improvements can be made and adopted, especially as they can be applied to addressing the, the backlogs crisis. The levels respectively represent improvement, removing waste, and adopting existing best practices. We know change and redesign work can be overwhelming. So this is another example of how breaking down our work through the use of models can help us think about improvement in more simple steps that can be tackled one by one. In order for us to tackle backlogs and increase access to care, we really need to get on the same page about what quality and value should really mean. Decades ago, the value in healthcare equation debuted pitting quality and in some other versions of the equation service against cost uh, uh, against each other. However, in our philosophy at Virginia Mason Institute, we believe value is defined by the customer, our patients. So we equate value with quality seen here in the Virginia Mason quality equation on the right which identifies the typical elements defining quality, outcomes and service that you see there in brackets, but it also emphasizes the crucial concepts of appropriateness and waste. Cost is nowhere to be seen here. Uh, we assume that when you eliminate waste, you will see cost uh, reductions as well. Now, it, if we strive to eliminate waste and ensure that the customer even wanted the service in the first place, appropriateness, quality will improve. And in healthcare, compared to other industries, we have a unique and crucial responsibility to help our patients understand the services they truly need. So we may have a better understanding of how to create value and quality for our patients, but what is the inverse? That is what we call waste. Our people are overwhelmed, overburdened, and overworked. So adding steps to the process <clears throat> 
even it is that if even if it increases quality and safety and satisfaction for the patients, probably is the last thing our people um, really need right now to lift the burdens from their shoulders. So looking at inefficiencies that are most commonly found in any kind of process can be defined in three ways, waste, unevenness, overburden. And so when thinking about redesigning, reimagining, innovating to improve staff and patient experience, breaking down into these concepts of inefficiencies can help team members pinpoint where to focus change. When looking at the root causes that have contributed to the growing backlogs pre-COVID and beyond, uh, waste, overburden, and unevenness uh, are major features. Uh, you'll hear it um, later on in the two case studies um, that we'll be sharing today. Uh, but I would invite you to look at your own processes for seeing patients or performing procedures and consider where you might see these three types of waste. Now, um, I'll finish up here before we start getting into some of our case studies that how do we actually move from these inefficiencies that are riddled in our work to releasing um, and finding more capacity. You'll see here the value added activity, the green box at the bottom is what staff and patients appreciate, right? Uh, but it's the inefficient and ineffective work or waste, which you can see here in the red and gray um, are what leads to burnt out staff, early resignations or retirements and very frustrated patients who are desperately trying to seek out uh, care. Oftentimes we see hospitals and healthcare providers reach for the off the shelf solutions to solve their sticky problems, but without identifying what in their work is wasteful, those solutions are often ill-fitting and fickle and aren't easily adaptable to your unique environment. And so targeting our efforts to first identify and then eliminate the ineffective and unnecessary work that can be eliminated without really any detrimental impact on patients allows us to increase that capacity uh, there in the, the dotted line onto the right to meet the growing demand that we're starting to see while also reducing required and inefficient work through continuous improvement, as you can see here on the right. So there are ways for us to, to really get there. So what does this actually look like, right? We've talked about a lot of different concepts and approaches here, but really, uh, what, what is it like in real life? And, and so I'd like to show um, our first example of applying some of those concepts. Virginia Mason, uh, Franciscan Health, has focused on patient scheduling as a key aspect to improving patient access and satisfaction for many years. And the improvement event at St. Anne's Hospital is just the latest success of this work. Uh, the challenges listed here uh, uh, on the slide are ones that the St. Anne's team in, in their outpatient clinics set out to tackle, but these are challenges that I suspect many of you um, here joining us today um, can likely relate to. While increasing access and productivity is certainly a win for St. Anne's operational performance, the main reason why St. Anne's chose to improve this was due solely to patient experience. Patient satisfaction is directly tied to ease of getting an appointment when, where, and with whom it is desired. And their patients simply weren't satisfied. They could see that in their patient satisfaction scores. Now we use this scheduling and access model at Virginia Mason that focuses on five critical themes, complexity, capacity, convenience, 
culture, and communication. Each theme can help improvement teams look deeply into specific aspects of scheduling that can remove bottlenecks, increase access, and ultimately improve the patient experience and bring joy back to the work as well. The St. Anne's team during their most recent improvement workshop chose to focus on just one theme, complexity. They realized that over time, they had created too much complexity even before the patient walked through the door, causing a major bottleneck in scheduling. Too many appointment types, 100 to be exact, made it difficult for staff to choose the right kinds of appointments for the patients, and in so doing, reduced the number of potential patients that could be seen in a day. So what did they do? They used the concept uh, from our unified approach called the PQ analysis. It's a method that allows you to categorize demand into specific families of products or services. That allows you to determine how to make your product or provide your services than how you've traditionally provided it. And it allows you to have all that is required to meet the demand of your customer. So PQ analysis asks you to answer honestly, what do the customers want? How much do they want it? When and where? It also challenges you to consider it if, for example, the resources and processes uh, should be the same for all the customers um, that are seeking uh, your services. Finally, it provokes you to deliver what the customers want in the best way possible, giving customers what they want, when they want it, and at the right amount, and inviting you to consider how you can provide those services most efficiently. And so as St. Anne's team analyzed their scheduling templates against the actual daily demand, they realized that in addition to the 100 appointment types to choose from, that complexity that I was just sharing there, their patient list templates were designed restrictively as well, with the ability to only see 12 patients a day per consultant. So you can see these block um, uh, appointments coming through uh, in, in major sections kind of visually depicted here on the right. That daily demand just simply couldn't be met. And so obviously a backlog began to grow until it became absolutely unmanageable. Now uh, you could use some traditional and just plainly unsustainable ways of problem solving like double booking two patients at once or adding more staff. But if the process itself uh, wasn't improved and it's going to lead to short-lived solutions that ultimately bring uh, teams back to square one. So we certainly couldn't do it that way. The PQ analysis helped the team realize that there wasn't a hundred different types of patient demand. There really actually was only 20, as you can kind of see from the top chart to the bottom chart, um, as they started to consolidate and see like for like the similarities between the different types of appointments they had. This PQ analysis method doesn't require an overwhelming amount of data to understand what the true demand and need for resources are. By studying the process, finding patterns in resource use, length of appointments, skill task alignment as well, the St. Anne's team redesigned their scheduling template and also eliminated 80% of their appointment types, resulting in less batching, less waiting, and even the flexibility to keep open access appointment slots for same day urgent care patients wanting to, to see their um, physicians in their outpatient clinic while seeing more total patients and reducing the backlog.
This truly embodies that earlier model, those levels of change, as the St. Anne's team embraced that level four, doing away with things. So being able to subtract sometimes is equally as good here. In addition, after making improvements to the room setup to reduce wasteful activities, such as looking for misplaced supplies, looking for information, setting up for procedures and more, reduction in total appointment type um, was achieved as well. And so what did this result in for St. Anne's? It was much easier to schedule, easier to see more patients and improve productivity as well. Um, they were able to find new capacity of 16,000 additional patients a year. Um, and because of that, they were actually able to recruit eight more primary care um, providers, GPs, into those improved processes. And that's now also resulting in an additional 40,000 visits per year. So their excellent improvement results not only improved the patient experience and productivity for the staff members who are already there, but it also became an attractive recruitment strategy as well. So we'll wrap up here with just one last improvement concept from our unified approach that can be applied to many settings that are suffering from a backlog crisis, and that's setup reduction. Setup reduction is an excellent method that reduces or eliminates setup time to increase capacity, flexibility, and quality as well. In healthcare, we still see so many instances where process steps that could have been prepared in advance or at your leisure are still being done right before the service or procedure that is about to be performed looking for supplies, equipment, or even processing information that can be collected, prepared, or reviewed at a more convenient or less stressful time can make a massive difference to a team's day, trying to see as many patients as humanly possible. And with that, I'd like to invite my colleagues from Surrey and Sussex, uh, Mr. Morali Bott and Thompson Clake to share their story, um, as you'll see some um, hints to both level three of change doing things better and level four of change, doing away with things to drive out the waste through setup reduction and other great improvement techniques I've shared today. So, Raleigh? Thank you very much, thank you. Um, yeah, hi, um, I understand that uh, I'm talking to lots of people who might not be on the clinical shop floor. So I'll try and keep the clinical jargon out of this. Um, I did my Lean for Leaders in 2017, um, uh, thanks to Virginia Mason and their senseis who helped us with training me. And my interest in um, virtual clinics started then when I was doing projects following that training. And it became very relevant in 2020 as the lockdown hit us in March 2020. And uh, various pilot projects that I've done in that period became important for management to decide how to upscale my learning and um, implement the virtual processes I was implementing in the hand clinics and various other places in my service to the entire trauma and orthopedic department. You're probably aware that within trauma and orthopedics in the UK, we separate out fractures from elective services. So we have fracture clinics and elective clinics. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about both uh, in the next 15 minutes. I'm hoping to also show you a patient video, which is, extremely powerful and actually conveying how a, how a customer um, uh, thinks, what a customer thinks about the services we provide. So yeah, we had these same issues, even pre-COVID in fact, uh, backlog was an issue, but it's become much 
more um, uh, imperative now and it's increased. Late referrals, uh, historically uh, patients with broken fingers and wrists, etc., would end up seeing us no sooner than two weeks after their injury, which is sometimes a bit too late to even give them the best outcome. So that is a big problem. Inappropriate referrals, those that actually didn't need to come at two weeks or didn't need to come at all, someone with a broken toe that had adequate treatment provided when they came to any, were not being told not to come to the fracture clinic and not being given adequate rehab advice instead. So we thought we should look tackle that. And then we also have this issue of uh, overpressurized fracture clinic, for example, with 80 patients, consultants not being able to see all of the patients. As a result, a number of patients would be seen by non-consultants such as registrars and SHOs. And if the first opinion that a patient receives is not accurate, then they go down the wrong pathway. So these were some of the challenges that we tried to address through our virtual fracture, uh, through our fracture clinics. Um, sorry, next slide, please, Melissa. So, uh, so what we thought, uh, what, uh, this, this slide shows the uh, redesigning of the patient experience, the previous patient flow. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use an example of patient A for that and patient B for the redesigned patient but both with the same injury. Let's assume that one of you sprained your ankles and you then arrive at uh, the uh, emergency department. Uh, you usually wait up to four hours to be seen. You get seen by a nurse practitioner, usually typically who will x-ray your ankle, provide you with a boot, a pair of crutches, and then ask you to go home with no advice saying that you'll be seen in two weeks. But in this two weeks, nothing is happening. Uh, the patient is not being told what is to be done. There are risks to that two weeks of doing nothing, including clots in the leg and death, etc. Um, and, and then they arrived in the fracture clinic. Large numbers of patients arrived. Um, sorry, we're, I didn't want to advance that slide. And, and basically, they ended up waiting for approximately two hours, often to be seen by a junior doctor or a consultant and spending one or two minutes in the clinic uh, and getting a low value consultation and not remembering more than half. In fact, 90% of what they were told was forgotten in, in, in that process. And then they started the rehab. So in the redesigned patient flow, what we do is uh, the initial bits are the same. Patient B has sprained their ankle. They arrive to the ED. Um, they still wait for the same length of time, see the emergency nurse practice, same treatments happen. And they're given an information leaflet at this stage, which tells them that their details will be reviewed by a consultant uh, within 72 hours. Often we're doing this in 24 hours uh, and they will receive the appropriate care plan. And I want to say just a little bit about these care plans, which we are very proud of. We have about 134 different care plans for uh, specific injuries, which provide detailed written information of what uh, they should be doing with their injury and how to rehab. And it must, much of it is written by senior physiotherapists. And there's a video link that um, we're happy to share with any hospital in this country, uh, to pro uh, which the patient will click onto. And again, a consultant and a senior physiotherapist will talk through the injury and the rehab for 10 minutes. So it is very, very detailed. And we let the patients read and watch these videos and then provide them with the phone number and an email to contact us if they didn't understand something about their care plan. 
A key figure to remember, this is nationally uh, uh, understood and uh, it's a known fact that 50% of all fracture clinic appointments are not necessary. They can be discharged from A&E if the adequate uh, care plans are provided and the adequate initial treatment is given. So this is what we did with our virtual fracture clinics. We actually have a much higher discharge rate, rate than 50% and I'll share that with you in the next few slides. So next slide, please. Next slide. Um, and then this, this is pertaining to the elective clinic. So being a hand surgeon, I can tell you again, nationally, half of all our patients in the hand clinics will be patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, and you should ask the question if a consultant needs to see patients with the carpal tunnel syndrome and think about other models of care. Um, so this, in this slide, we're talking about the classic appointment of 30, say, say uh, a patient set up for a 30 minute appointment. Um, so why is it taking 30 minutes? Have we asked ourselves this question? And actually in my assessment of this, I found that 90% of my time in that 30 minutes was taken up by administrative tasks or tasks that didn't require a consultant, such as things like history taking or doing simple tests, et cetera. Uh, so, so what we have done with that is many things. This slide shows you how video and phone appointments can, can reduce your setup time. So those that are cynical or skeptical clinicians, uh, I'm talking about, about video consultations and phone consultations, because we're all brought up to touch patients, examine patients uh, to make a diagnosis. My take on that would be, why don't you take a history over the phone or, or a video, which takes a good 10 minutes or longer sometimes. Some of the simple tests that we do in clinic can be done by patients themselves, if you have a good quality video, et cetera. And you will reduce some of these 30 minutes by doing virtual uh, uh, video or telephone consultation. So we do that now routinely. And then we have a plan in place for the patient. For instance, someone with a carpal tunnel syndrome will say, it sounds like you have a carpal tunnel syndrome. Come in for five, 10 minutes. I'll do a quick, well-directed examination and I'll set you up for an injection to your carpal tunnel. So that way we increase our capacity. We also, what we have done with our elective clinics is we do something called rooming in which came from Virginia Mason as well, which I really liked, which was the, uh, we have three physiotherapists who run my hand clinic. There are, some of them have worked with me for more than 10 years. Uh, they take the history, they examine the patients, they present the cases to me. And so they're learning and they're constantly improving. And to the extent that five years down the line, I trust them to see routine hand patients safely. And so we have tremendously increased our capacity by rooming in patients. We use the expression management jargon as I'm the water spider actually hovering the corridor and only going into the rooms when I'm needed. Uh, and I find that if a consultant is paying paid big bucks to see patients, why are we not using the pattern recognition skills, which is what they will have become good at, um, uh, to train lots of other staff and, and, and spread the knowledge. So not only do you increase the capacity, the staff satisfaction goes up, people want to work with you and, and recruitment and retention becomes a lot easier. So these are some of the things I wanted to touch upon when you deal with elective clinics. 
Going one step further with elective clinics, we do a, a triage one week before the clinic where 45, 50 patients for the next week will be assessed virtually. And we put in a process in place for when they arrive, that which, which might include that as they arrive, they go and have their X-ray or they have their plaster removed they have such and such follow-up plan or they, that, that, that they're being discharged. So there's plenty of benefits in thinking out of the box and doing things differently. Next slide, please. Uh, this is where I pass you on to Tamsin. I'm extremely uh, delighted to uh, offer Tamsin the stage now because she's put in a lot of work with the virtual fracture clinics and my role now is literally supervision, delegation, and she's, she's someone who organizes everything for us. So I thought she should talk from now. And we have a patient who will talk to you after this. Thank you. So this is our production board, which is one of the Virginia Mason's tools. And it's been a real big game changer for us. As a team, we meet every morning at the production board. It's a visible board that shows how our clinic's gonna run in the day. And on the left hand side, you can see our red, yellow, green system, which is a rag rating system, which shows whether our clinics are overbooked on red, whether our clinics are underbooked and there's capacity. So we could squeeze in some extra patients. And if green, we're working at optimum. So we know exactly how many patients are coming in. It's also a great opportunity to integrate our care. So we have all our plaster technicians attend. So a lot of our patients, we can directly refer to the plaster team to have their plasters removed. So they don't even need to come in to see the doctors and then they can go home. It's also a great board that identifies if there's any what we call defects or problems that might happen during the day. And this is not something else I've learned from the Virginia Mason. So say for example, if there's a missing imaging ready for a clinic, which might delay a clinic, we can prepare that and order our images in preparation for a clinic just to make sure all the clinics run smoothly. Um, and then what we also do is we review that clinic times are running on time. So we can sort of see if clinic delays are happening, but also why they're happening. And one of the things we highlighted on this were we were having quite a few transport patients that would take time to bring into the clinic. So even though low numbers were coming into clinics, the, the different types of patients would have different demands. So it allowed us to what we call PDSA, so plan, do, study and act, to see if we could resolve that problem, to see if we could bring them in at a different time. And then lastly, it would also show staffing levels to ensure we've got adequate consultants on board and doctors on board to see the patients that are coming into clinic. And again, we could make, um, uh, make um, solutions to, to resolve that if there are uh, staff shortages on that day. So it's been a fantastic board that we use regularly. So next slide, Melissa. So just lastly, from the work that we've been working through with the lean approach with our virtual fracture clinics, we've had a great success of 61% and a little bit higher at times of our discharge patients where they've been able to manage conservatively at home through our care plans and our videos, so they haven't even had to come into the clinic. And a lot of these patients might be children who can't take time off school, they could be patients in residential homes that can't actually come into a hospital, or people can't actually take time off work, so their patient experience has been really, really high. We're also very, very proud that access to care has been a lot quicker. So all our referrals are vetted um, by consultants within 72 hours. And this is one of our national guidelines pr um, produced by the British Orthopaedics um, Association. So we're very, very proud of that. 
And then also follow up appointments, getting it right first time. So we're bringing them in due to urgency and priority for their clinical condition. So whether we're bringing them in for a day follow up in comparison to a 12 week follow up for a check x-ray for a collarbone fracture, which means then patients can access theatre times and surgery at a more appropriate time um, as we're triaging them more appropriately. Um, and also we find that GPs and primary care providers can actually access um, us through the emergency channels and refer referrals direct into us. And we have a fantastic feedback loop in our system to educate and train our referrals to improve the quality of care. And then next slide is our patient story, which is a fantastic patient story. And I'll let her explain how she um, went through the previous process and then into our new process to, to share her, her story and her experience. Hello, my name is Jessica Townsend and I've asked, been asked to give you feedback on the difference between the new service that you're now providing and the old service. Unfortunately, I tripped and um, dislocated and broke my shoulder and I had a similar injury this time this last year, so I've experienced both fairly recently. So I'd like to say that the new service was much better, it meant I had contact much quicker and also had information. I felt the fact sheet was really, really useful and the video was very helpful and meant, meant that you did your exercises um, much better um, and felt competent doing them. The other big advantage is you don't have the waiting time at the um, fracture clinic because it's a very busy clinic and then usually it waits at least an hour and a half um, and then it's also not your waiting time as well, it's your driver's waiting time so that saves another person. So that's a, that's a really big advantage. I could start my exercises a lot earlier so I'm hoping that will give me a better outcome. But also it felt, I felt confident doing my exercises because you could see it on the video. So I thought that was very useful. Um, I felt I had more time to ask questions. Um, because the clinic's so busy, you feel really, really bad asking questions. And also because you're sitting there for such a long time, you forget what you want to ask. And so, you know, it meant that you had time to think about it. <clears throat> and, um, and I think um, the added service that you can email or phone them to ask further questions when you're unsure, because last time I felt very much on my own. And then in between, if you had queries, if you had niggles and you weren't, you were, you know, worried about something, you didn't have anybody that you could contact where now I could. So I do feel that, you know, this service is much better than my service last year. Um, and um, hopefully uh, this video will encourage you to um, um, do this service to a wider community because I think it's been very useful. Thank you very much. Great. Is that to me now? Okay. Thank you, Mr. Morali and Tamsin. Very much appreciated for the insight and Melissa too for the in-depth kind of um, view of how Virginia Mason also helped with, with the improvement technologies. We've got, um, I'd like to encourage people to use the either the chat or the Q&A function to ask questions. Um, we've got a question which I'll turn to in just a second. Can I can I just start by asking one um, question to weld the two parts of the to, of the webinar together, um, Mr. Morelli and Tamsin? Could you could you talk a little bit about your experience about how important the Virginia Mason improvement methodology was and your experience of learning that and then applying it in this context, um, just so that we can get a sense of how you know we went from the first half to to where we are now with with the clinic up and running and doing amazingly well. Yes, I can start with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I sort of, I have to say that um, I was already bought in this concept of waste. In my mind, I didn't know what to call it um, before Virginia Mason. But I, I was aware that there was a lot of wasted 
resources within the NHS in the different areas that I was working in, but I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know how to address it. I didn't know how to measure it. All of these things is what I learned from Virginia Mason. So I believe it's a scientific method to actually enable and empower clinicians to measure the current state. Whereas in the past, I think there's a, there, there was a tendency for us to gather in corridors and complain about managers and say how they, they should be doing this and they should be doing that. Uh, and, and a lot of that has changed now. It is we, it is, it's not us and them. Uh, and I think that's my answer to that is that it's, it's a scientific method It's fairly accurate. It enables you and empowers you to actually come up with figures to then persuade management and staff that we need to try and invest in this, that or the other, or that we don't need to invest in anything because we've got enough resources already. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, very much. Tamsin, do you want to add or Melissa? Yeah, I mean, one example I had with what Miralee was saying to about the waste was um, we did a lot of time waste with over dictating clinic letters for all our patients. So if we triage, let's say 50 referrals, we would dictate 50 referrals and that could take 20 minutes per patient. So once you've referred them, done an x-ray and done a dictation, it could take 20 minutes. And then what we, we, we did um, a PDSA cycle to improve it. And we actually took the dictation out and did a standard letter. So for each condition, we have a standard letter. And dramatically, it changed that uh, a referral process into about two to five minutes. So we could complete a referral in two to five minutes. So it got rid of a lot of unnecessary waste that wasn't really adding time to the patient experience. Um, so that was just one example that we worked on from, a, from the waste um, with Virginia Mason. Great, thank you. Yeah. I just really like the way that Tamsin and Raleigh just shared their their perspectives on that. And it just really beautifully highlights why that common language and having a unified improvement approach so that your entire team can communicate a little bit more effectively on what exactly it is that they're struggling with, what they're frustrated about, et cetera, as opposed to, you know, Raleigh has to say in the course, like, I just don't feel good, right? It doesn't feel right. They just don't know how to verbalize that. And so being able to use the, the, the identifying ways of, of different types of waste, et cetera, gives you a much more focus and prioritization of, oh, hang on a minute, we're doing all of these things. And it clearly is a time waste. We're over-processing or we're clearly just creating more inventory when the patients don't even need it. I don't even need it as, as a clinician. Why are, we, why are we stockpiling, for example? And so that language just really helps to make it more effective in terms of what your improvement should then be. So it really just is, is a nice highlight of, of, of the effectiveness of the conversations there. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna to turn to some questions from the floor now um, and uh, I'll do them justice, I think in this order. Can I start with a question about, um, access so there's a question about how do you how do you look at people who have language barriers or digital divide barriers they might not have access to i don't know mobile phone or a computer or, or the web or something like that and what's your process of making sure that those patients get um, screened and appropriately supported so so we we at the point of offering people appointments we're giving them a choice of saying you have the opportunity for this to be a video consultation or a face-to-face -face consultation what would you prefer um, so that, that, that's one thing we do. The other thing um, we do is that if we can't 
do a video consultation, they, they can request a face-to-face -face appointment. So we empower our patients to, to decide whether they do or don't want to go ahead with virtual consultation. So we're not forcing them to do it. And, and I'll be honest with you, that um, it's not going to be accepted. Like us, patients are human beings and they don't accept changes like we don't accept change very quickly. Uh, it is a matter of time, I think, even though we're 18 months since the COVID um, hit us, I think it's going to take us some time before the population starts to accept that there is a lot of benefit. From so I'll give you an example. If you see a new patient, I choose to do it on video. If I do a follow-up, I choose a telephone call because I know the patient already having seen them on video. I know that when, I'm, when I need to check on them six weeks later, all I need to do is to talk to them. So I'll say to them, I'm happy to ring you in six weeks to ask you how you felt with this injection. I think I'll gather enough information. And they'll often say, okay, if you think so, then yeah, I'll save my petrol, I'll stop coming here and wanting to park. There will always be a group of people who will say, no, I prefer to come out face to face. Mm. Understood. And, and roughly what percentage um, take up virtual versus face-to-face -face in your experience? So for our elective clinics, it's, it's about a 50-50 at the minute. Would that be right? 50-50, okay. yeah. I'd say. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and what about the language barrier point? Because I, I, I heard very clearly about the, the option on attending in person or whatnot. And I imagine language barriers are a problem for clinics anyway, period, whether you deliver them virtually or not. So how do you deal with language barriers? I have to say, in all the virtual consults I've done, I haven't come across that yet, but I can see why that might come up. Mm. Uh, uh, I am guessing, Thompson, correct me if I'm wrong, that the booking team will have picked it up that such and such has a need for a translator and will not have booked them for a virtual. That's what I'm guessing, which is why I haven't seen that situation. It's very rare. And on the virtual fracture clinic side, the referrals, we put it on the assessment. So when we review the referral, A&E or minors would put in um, yeah. language difficulties and barriers. And then when we triage it, we put it in the note to say, uh, yeah. recommend face-to-face. Um, with yeah. or without translator, or they'll say they're bringing their husband, their wife, their partner. Great, thank you. Um, we've got um, a few questions still to get through, so I'm going to um, try and move through them. So the first one is really about um, how how long did it take you to get from thinking we're going to work this way through to the you, you showed some impact statements at the end about you know we've got this kind of you know throughput okay. and, and, well, and so on. How, how long did all that take? Right, so uh, forever is the answer. Uh, <laughs> Never I, think stops. That, I think that uh, if we sit on our laurels and think we have achieved the perfect state, then we're missing something. Uh, that's what, again, uh, Virginia Mason talks about this as continuous progressive improvement. Mm. And I, I would say, I suggest to everyone who does this, it's fun, it's great fun. And Antamson, you'd agree with me that every day is different. Every day we come up with something, we'll identify a problem and say, such and such occurred to this patient. What can we do? Oh, let's change this for that patient. And then you reassess. And, and we, we are, we're not perfect by any means. We're proud of where we've got to, but it keeps on evolving and improving. Mm. 
uh, and it does need champions at every level. I do believe that on the shop floor, there is going to be reluctance in accepting these changes. It is a fairly lonely path. You need a strong mind to persevere with it and bring people. And I've learned something. I used to, maybe, I, maybe I'm being harsh on myself. I used to be more abrasive as a person, as a, for, with interpersonal relationships, making rash judgments. But now, knowing that if I focus on the process, somehow it has a way of helping interpersonal relationships. And it seems to also enable that key word of respect for people. So I feel at peace now. Well, you seem um, very respectful at peace. I can't imagine you being abrasive at all. Um, <laughs> how about um, uh, the, the buy-in from stakeholders? I mean, how complex was that? And how hard did you have to work to get other stakeholders, perhaps in the trust or the hospital, to, to buy into what you're doing here? And then a related question, if I may just link to, which is, have you seen this spread out into other parts of the hospital in terms of a way of working, a way of examining problems? Well, the first thing I'll say with that is, you know, in this seven levels of change slide that Melissa presented earlier, I was looking at it, the five, that step five was doing things other people are doing. Actually, I would argue that a lot of the things I, uh, we started here was nothing new. There were lots of these things that were happening around us. It's just that we were, we were not doing it. Um, so we decided that we should start to involve. So we actually got Brighton and various other neighboring trusts on, and found the clinical leads for those hospitals and, uh, and said, we would like to see how you're working. We went and visited them uh, and we got them over to us, etc. So that's the first stage at which just doing what other people are doing well. Uh, and then we went on to the next step of what no one else is doing. Um, so, and, and then starting with my own fracture clinic, it, it, this, this is the key part is when I started this in 2017 in my fracture clinic, I didn't have any, any resources. It was just literally what I already had. And that, that gave me figures. So I did one year's work on my fracture clinic, just changed, tweaked things a little bit and did stuff virtually. And then I got figures with some 1300 patients. We didn't have enough time to bring, up, bring that up in the slides. And the discovered 650, exactly half of those patients were discharged. So, so that then meant that we were able to take those figures to the rest of the department. So we, we, the TNO suddenly said, okay, we want to know what you're doing. We want to see if we can try and do that for the whole department. So that's then the next stage with the COVID um, in March. In September 2020, we then spread the whole thing across TNO. And then we recruited a Tamsin to coincide with all that. Does that make sense? Sorry, my, my ignorance, but what's TNO? Tra trauma and orthopedics. Right. Thank you. Um, and I would just and, add to that yeah, really thanks. quickly with what Morali was kind of sharing there as well in terms of how do you get some of that buy-in. And so, you know, having, you know, two, two things in hand. One is having the data, um, the measurements to kind of demonstrate like this actually kind of works. So would you be interested in, in kind of releasing some of the, the burdens of work that you're experiencing in, in your clinics and what could that look like and how can we explore that? Um, but I suspect that Raleigh's colleagues probably saw him and his team and saying, boy, they're looking really calm over there. They, they look like they're really enjoying their work. Um, they don't look like they're harried and just stressed and overwhelmed. 
what is it that they're doing that's different from us? And so it is that that intrigue, that curiosity that gets people on board and saying, I want what it, whatever it is that you're drinking over there, I want it too. You know, how do I get on board? So it's just a really nice uh, combination of, of ways to, to bring people and, and, and get them um, interested in, in doing improvement work for themselves. Thank you. And Tamsin, right, you were describing Melissa. a bit. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, please, Tamsin. And you're right, Melissa. I think it was only Murali who attended the Virginia Mason League Leaders. And since then, there's probably been six or seven of us who are now doing it. So it's slowly trickling through. We've now got a doctor on board. We've got a plaster technician who's doing the lean for leaders in what we call our hospital. So it's slowly, slowly spreading in our department. Mm. Do you get colleagues coming up to you, Tamsin, and saying, you know, how, how are you doing that? What's going on? Do, are you creating a buzz in, in uh, amongst your colleagues? Um, you talked. Yeah, I mean, you must be. You talked about. You talked about how the the whole kind of wait times have gone down and the whole feel is different in the clinic. So it must be. You must, colleagues must be asking you questions. I'm imagining. Yeah, it, it is definitely. I think the clinics are definitely improving, and as you say, yeah. there's there's less patients coming in, so there is a buzz. Um, yeah. We're still moving through it. There are still some obstacles, but um, yeah, we're getting there. I think. Uh, can I just say that the uh, the buzz is at eight thirty in the morning every morning around the production board. I can feel the buzz mm -hmm. when all of the people are standing around the production board discussing the day's work. It's really, really nice to see that. We didn't have anything like that. We didn't know what the day's work would be like. Simple things like that make huge differences. Everybody goes after the production board meeting knowing what they're doing for the rest of the day. It's such a simple yeah. thing to do. Um, I'm just going to come back to a couple of questions. Thank you. The, the one was about. Um, it links to the stakeholder point, but primary care and uh, do they have to go through ED to get to you or can they refer direct in? How does that link in the patient pathway work? Um, so what, what we did was because we were doing well, it takes, we measured how long it takes us to see one, one referral virtually and it's roughly a minute per patient. So if you think about it, that's pretty damn good considering 15 minutes to 30 minutes is what people book them for in a face-to-face -face clinic. So that meant that we were able to open our floodgates for more referrals. So we thought, who else wants to refer patients to us? Or maybe GPs would appreciate this. So we opened the doors to the GPs, gave them the referral criteria to say, these are the ones we want you to refer. We don't want them to refer planned you know, cases, then that would make everything confusing. So someone who's come from a holiday in Greece, had an injury there, they did some initial treatment, they come to the GP often, and the GP is wondering where to refer them. So those now don't have to go through the old choose and book type referrals, and then someone to pick it up as actually urgent, they automatically come through the VFC. Great, that no, was actually me as well, by the way. Um, <laughs> I had that experience. Uh, I think it's a lovely question to finish on here. Um, how? Uh, you've, you've, we've talked a lot about different ways of working, and I, I'd, I'd say that's about stepping outside your comfort zone too. I imagine you know you're going on a journey. Um, and how do you get the, the phrase here is orthopods? So I, I, I take that to be clinicians. How do you get clinicians to be um, to get over that kind of comfort barrier and step outside of that zone? You know, they may be saying, "I can't do virtual. I don't like doing virtual. Um, I, I, you know, I want to be in touch with my patients." You know, how do you? 
how do you create the mindset for change and, and help people through we that? We have the reputation of being the most difficult bunch. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right to be asking that question. Um, yeah, it hasn't been easy. So from 2017 till 2020, I was the only person who'd done the Lean for Leaders and I was just urging my colleagues to go and do it. And I was struggling and two consultants signed up and, and dropped off halfway through. Oh, I can't be bothered. The, all this has happened. So we weren't talking anything negative uh, that, that went through. But I, you just have to keep going. Keep your focus on the process. Make these little changes every day. Stick to your guns. It needs a lot of discipline. I will not mince my words on that. Uh, the biggest thing that this whole thing needs is a lot of discipline. So if you have a clinical champion, I'd like to think I'm one of them in my department. It helps hugely. So then you keep plugging at things day by day and stick to the processes. And then what happens is this thing about others thinking, how is it that he's discharging so many? How is it that, that his patient satisfaction is so high? And it all now starts to reflect on, on their own practice. And now slowly, and we get newer consultants coming in. We insist now in our department that do lean for leaders. And uh, the trust policy for new appointment is they have to do lean for leaders. So there's not even an option not to. So it can, maybe it takes five to 10 years for things to evolve. I think Virginia Mason had the same experience, am I right? It took nearly five to 10 years, didn't it? Where now, if any new recruit comes to that hospital, they don't ask any questions. They just follow whatever the trust has put in place. So it's that kind of thing. It's a lonely path. It does feel lonely at various time points, but if you are passionate about it, it does work, I can assure you. Thank you. I'm going to hand over to Melissa and Tad for final words, but I'd just like to add my personal thanks to, to you, Mr. Morelli and Tamsin. Thank you for sharing. Melissa and Tad, thank you too. Over to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Melissa, Morelli and Tamsin. And, and thank you, Kevin, for uh, moderating the Q&A. So we're, we're um, right at time. So just quickly wrapping up. Uh, first, just want to point out that we have some uh, related tools and resources that you can find on our website. Uh, so be sure to connect with us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn for news and updates uh, regarding any of our upcoming events and virtual trainings. Um, and if you're interested in continuing your learning, we have a variety of services to help uh, meet your needs. Um, learn more at our website. It's virginiamasoninstitute.org. And you can uh, also email us at info at virginiamasoninstitute.org. Uh, thank you again, Melissa, Morali, and Tamsin, and to everyone uh, participating in today's webinar. Uh, I'm just going to hand it off to Kevin, who uh, I believe has just uh, last couple words to close with. Um, it's uh, sort of basically to say thank you that this has been an NHS providers panel um, session hosted by Virginia Mason with with Mr. Morali and Tamsin. Um, we have a panel of, of uh, top advisors, um, whether they're consultants or legal advisors, and we're delighted to be working for the Jim with Virginia Mason in that context. Thank you so much for your thought leadership here. I encourage people to check the links in the in the deck that you've just shared, Tad, and we'll close there. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for this Virginia Mason Institute webinar recording. The video recordings and Q&A transcripts are also available on our website under the resources section. Please also stay tuned for our upcoming original podcast series where we'll be interviewing healthcare leaders and improvement experts to provide you insights and inspiration from our Virginia Mason team. Thanks again for listening.